This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So I put that up on the table. Okay, we're past our time. We have a big press to start on time. We're already over it. Uh, so uh, let's begin to announce uh, next week will be uh, Joshua Chestnut Teach Us to Pray. Solitude and Silence. So last time it was praying without ceasing. This is Solitude and Silence. Um, after that, March 17th, is Adam Kurahara. Then you can come and listen to some good music and have it explained. Uh, can Beauty Save Us? A guided listening journey in choral music for Holy Week. So that'll be in, that's in two weeks' time. Okay, challenges to the modern university. I'm going to have a dynamic PowerPoint this evening. Uh, and that's about as far as it goes. I was meant to have the, the title of the book that I'm referring to on here, too, but I didn't get my drama didn't carry me that far. Um, anyway, um, challenges to the modern university in the U.S. There are so many and so many areas that I'm a bit actually very embarrassed by my title because uh, we could get into so many different problems that are real challenges that are that are very important challenges to to modern uh, university education. Race and admission polarization in the world, which hits hard academic requirements, curriculum, uh, the problem of academic siloing. I'll be talking about that a bit. The disappearance of the humanities, English majors. There's an article in the New Yorker this week about the, the English majors are disappearing. Uh, no one's majoring in English or history anymore. Um, not nobody, but almost nobody. Uh, professors are going, uh, are afraid for their jobs. Um, the, the purpose of education itself. Who? Uh, no one can agree uh, on that. And, and uh, on top of that, outrageous tuition fees and the debts that come from those outrageous tuition fees. Um, and the biggest question of all, why go to college or university at all? Is it worth it? Uh, so for that reason or those reasons, I'm going to trust your patience with me for looking at a few areas that I find personally interesting and important. I'll be doing quite a lot with how we got here, so there'll be a lot of history in this, but but um, I think that's an important way to get a running start. I remember years ago riding on a bus, leaving a Libri conference, I think it was in Kentucky, 
um, and riding in the bus to the airport with a bunch of college professors whose professors who had been at the conference at which I was lecturing on I had been lecturing on political correctness this was 1990s early or, or mid 1990s uh, and we had a great discussion we'd had good discussions all along but a great discussion in the in the bus uh, and I was amazed um, that they surprised me in, 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 in speculating that they were thinking that the university might cease to exist in a few generations. These were college university professors saying this. Uh, and I, I was amazed. I say, what? And what would replace it? And they said, most of them, actually with three or four of them, I think the majority of them thought that the corporate world will offer better training for their money and for their purposes than the university can, and it will make the university largely obsolete. It was the corporation will take over and do what it needs much cheaper, much more efficiently than um, that is being done now. And, and these were college professors. Uh, now, I, I don't see signs of that happening since this was a while ago, although... And, and tuitions were nowhere near as expensive then as they are now. Uh, and then you also hear people uh, spoken of, like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Matt Damon, who never bothered to get a college degree, though they started college. They never bothered to finish, but did pretty well for themselves uh, in, the, in the standards of, uh, of modern culture. Uh, but it makes me think of the vulnerability of higher education and how we mustn't think it's a sort of a rock that is there, that's always been there and will always continue to be there as we remember it. I never do book reports on Friday nights here. Somehow it's as if that was demeaning. I'm not sure why, if I'm too proud to do a book report. But, but uh, I'm going to be leaning, I'm not going to be doing a book report, but I'm going to be leaning very hard on a certain book. Okay? So you get, I'll, I'll call it what I want. Um, it, it, uh, it's called Restoring the Soul of the University. Uh, some of us here know about this. I've, I've been beating some people over the heads with this. It's, a, it's written by three professors from Christian universities, Perry Glanzer and Nathan Alleman and Todd Ream. They teach, both the first two teach at Baylor, and the third teaches at Taylor University. So they're all at Christian universities. And they have a profound and very deep sense, because this represents an enormous amount of work and a lot of very uh, strong felt uh, views. They felt very much that the universe, university has lost its soul. And by that, they mean the soul being made up of the core identity for who the university is, what the university is, uh, the story of the university, the story of what we're on about anyway, and a shared mission for the university. Uh, it's something that is shared by everybody taking part of it. We are moving together toward something. Uh, and that would make a soul. That would constitute a soul. That would add up together and be the soul of a university. Their book is ambitious in that it covers the history of the university with a, a running critique of what was gone, what has gone wrong, and with it then, how that could all be put right from a Christian perspective. Um, they're putting it right. Is a, I'm really glad that they did it because some very interesting 
things they're going to say. I'll share a, a little bit of it with you toward the end this evening. But but um, uh, they're really seriously grappling with what could be different that's realistic. Now, how much is realistic in what they propose is another whole story. But but I talked to one educator and complained that. He says, well, we live in a place now, a time now, we need a utopia to at least aim at. In other words, we need someone to step way out and take risks and, and, and say what ought to be done because uh, we're, we're in such trouble now that we, uh, we need that. So I want to start with the pre-modern university. Uh, and I'll follow them uh, by starting with a man called uh, Hugh of St. Victor. Peter has studied him much more than I have, and I hope he can help us out if need be. But, but he was a passionate Christian teacher. Uh, in the 12th century. So he's way back. We don't know when he was born, but he died in 1141. Uh, head of a school at St. Victor, which is part of Paris. And when he was working there, it was, it was in the process of leading into or becoming what, be, what became the University of Paris, <clears throat> would become the University of Paris. Hugh drew heavily on Augustine, who, was, who bridged the 4th and 5th century AD, a great giant of theological and, uh, well, and, and biblical study, um, drew heavily from Augustine and is in his place of looking, relying on the scriptures as our authority and challenging the, um, the earlier pagan Greek philosophers that had influenced him before, uh, that had kept him from Christ uh, and uh, had kept his... Uh, he said, led his life in, in completely the wrong direction. Uh, so his view was much very, very critical of the of the, the pagan Greeks and uh, fascinating on the on the scriptures. And if you read someone like Calvin or Luther, they quote Augustine again and again and again. Calvin quotes him many more times than he quotes anybody else because he see the, the seeds of the Reformation were all there in in uh, in the work of Augustine. Um, to to uh, Hugh of St. Victor the task of education was not so much combating paganism, Greek philosophy but was how do we put together a notion of education a notion of a school, of a university or whatever uh, that will restore our images of God he did a lot with Ephesians 5, 1, 1 and 2 be imitators of God therefore as dearly beloved children live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He claimed, this is our entire task, this is a quote, this is our entire task, the restoration of our nature and the removal of our deficiency. Rest of our nature means restore the images of God, our deficiency means sin. How can we get past sin, leave it behind, overcome it, and, and, uh, and grasp what it is to be able to image God, be able to reflect God, uh, because that is who we are. That is our identity. That is who we're created to be. Uh, and it's basically, it's just to say education is the Christian life, learning the Christian life or teaching the Christian life. And this is how we saw it with, with, with uh, at that time, obviously profoundly uh, Christianized or a culture influenced very much by the Christian faith. How is this done? He said, by the contemplation of truth and the practice of virtue. Uh, one of the reasons they, one of the ways they grasp, uh, St. 
Victor very much is that he's not just into a theology being a head trip, not just education being something to get your head stuffed with the right ideas. It's, got, it's action. It's practical. It's, in, it's lived out. It's, it's wrestled with and lived with. Virtues, he's, he noticed, don't come naturally to us. Uh, and so because they don't come naturally to us, they're only, um, they're only formed with practice. Uh, without practice, that means that without practice, they're not formed. As if we just talk, talk about them, think about them, make ideas about them, write books about them, we never get there. Uh, so that you get the idea, his notion of education was not just head-tripping, not just head knowledge, just not memorizing things, passing exams, and so on. It, it was really grappling with truth and living it out. Um, this is part of why I think they grasp someone like that who has this, who has a grip, as, as he did, and saying, this is what we've got to move toward, uh, like it or not. Wisdom is an intellectual friendship with God, and Jesus is the incarnation of wisdom. Since philosophy means loving wisdom, our knowledge of Jesus, our theology, must inform our philosophy and all our disciplines. He had a grip on what we have called for years in Libri, the Lordship of Christ over all of life. That means Christ is the Lord, he's the creator, he's the redeemer, uh, he's the Lord over everything we touch and do. Uh, one example of his teaching, uh, it would be intriguing to see how this worked in action. thought, as you can imagine, humility was really very, very important. He said, if you lack humility, it undermines all your learning. You'll never learn anything that's worthwhile if you, if you lack humility. Uh, and for the, just for, especially for starting students, he had three lessons, three practical lessons to do, which are interesting to think about. First, hold no knowledge and writing in contempt. No knowledge or writing in contempt. Two, blush to learn from no man. In other words, don't be embarrassed for learning from anybody. Uh, Three, having attained learning, now you've arrived, never look down on anyone. Uh, <laughs> you see, this is he expected, not just knowledge, memorized stuff, but this is, was put in practice, and this is what he would teach his students how to do it, uh, not just what it meant, or not just how to describe it. Uh, not just the knowledge of virtue, but the practice of virtue, especially to acquire the virtues of Christ. If not, that corrupts learning. Can you imagine where human knowledge and the whole academic would be today if this had been a standard held high for the last 900 years since he required this? It'd be a huge, huge tanking of, of all publishing, I'm afraid. <laughs> and, and, and I, I'll let you dream what else would, would have suffered. But, but uh, radical stuff to even even think about. Um, he's not saying you have to agree with everything that all these people wrote, but you must not hold, hold them in contempt. They're images of God. Um, reminds me a little bit of the Apostle Paul when he's when he doesn't enter into the riot in the Book of Acts in Ephesus, uh, and the, the the leaders in the towns said, "Don't go in. It's not safe here." The non-Christian leaders said, "Don't go in," and and they argued. Uh, for him, that he is not—he's not made fun of our of our of our religion, and he's called them idols. He called them the, 
he told him, you're not God. I'll tell you the true God, the true God. Uh, these are not us, not us, they're not true God. But some of their impression that he did that in a way that he, that he had not been scorning them or scorning their belief. He's, he's saying it wasn't true. But it, it's an intriguing uh, thing, to, thing to read and, and to say, whoa, uh, what an attitude he must have had, what a relationship he must have had, enabling him to say things that really were powerful and would cut into their worldview. Uh, Hugh St. Victor thought, said that there's in his time a big conflict between reasoning and, and devotion. Of course, these are two completely different things to in conflict with each other. You're, you're into one or into the other. He says, rubbish. Uh, reason is not against devotion, but reason is a form of devotion. Reason is a gift of God to be used for God. So, again, he's trying to not get lost in these, in these polarizations. But he, from the scripture, he's saying, no, we, don't, we can't buy into these, these splits. For him, theology was one discipline among many. But in practice, he followed Augustine and taught that theology was the light by which we see all other knowledge. Think of the lights around the room here. Their object, just like everything else, is an object in this room, including yourselves and your chairs and so on, the books, all all the books. Uh, But they're a special kind of object in that if you turn them off, we wouldn't see anything. We'd be in the dark. So it's by the light. They're just objects with everything else, but they're objects that cast light and make us able to see the rest of the world. Now he's saying this is what theology is. enables us to see truly the rest of the world uh, as as we grasp them. Um, we must allow the, the, the theology of the scripture, the message, the story, the ethics of the Bible to speak into every area that we would study or live in. He trained people for the religious life, but also very much for ordinary life of doing, being whatever they are. Uh, and he, he used as a, a metaphor for education, he sees like, so like, like building a building. And you start from the bottom and you will have as many parts, but there's a coherent whole and purpose to it. And his ideas became did become part early on of the of the University of Paris. Uh, he died in, uh, as I say, eleven forty one. The three authors of this book that I'm drawing from think we still have a lot to learn from Hugh of Saint Victor, and he he comes up all through this book. Um, the second person I want to look to here is Thomas Aquinas, the next century. 1225 through 1274. Italian priest of enormous intellectual gifts and and influence. Uh, Very much alive, certainly today, with his influence, especially in the structure of Roman Catholic thinking. Uh, I won't have anything like time to say very much about him, but I'll take one area. He had a very different sense than Augustine. He had, I can't help thinking it's a lighter view of sin than Augustine had the impact of sin on, on us. Uh, he felt free to separate philosophy that can done, be done fine by people like Aristotle and so forth, and, and we can follow them and agree with them, from theology and have two different areas of study. Um, and he put theology in a grand place as if uh, these folks talk about it as being the top floor of a, of a castle or the, the penthouse of a, of a tall building. A place of honor where it could be seen and looked up to and valued um, and, and, uh, and respected theology as the queen of, science, of the sciences, uh, telling us about God, about grace, about faith, about salvation. The rest of the lower part of the house 
could be, and the foundation of the house could be understood and, and described by Aristotle. That was nature. This was grace up here. Uh, he did not, uh, as I said, it, it was a, a lighter view of sin than Augustine had, so that the rest of life, nature, and all that we call the liberal arts could be understood and taught without reference specifically to God's revelation. Uh, but human reason was sufficient and, and to understand it and to teach about it and to, and to uh, communicate it to, to the world. Uh, we can learn about nature, about the natural world, perfectly well from Aristotle, Plato, Cicero, Ptolemy, Seneca, and so on, uh, who had no access to biblical revelation, revelation of God. So theology was in a penthouse, admired and praised, able to speak about God, Jesus, and salvation. But the rest of the house, all the way down to the foundation, would be, could be understood by someone like Aristotle. Now, these, the, this is very contrary to Augustine. He was St. Victor, followed Augustine. But, but um, Augustine's own view of himself was that he had just barely escaped from the influence of these people in order to become a Christian at all. So he, was, he found them to be a snare. Um, if we skip ahead several hundred years, we have the Reformation, started with Luther in 1517, which brought enormous changes in all the things that we could think and talk about here. Um, among them, scads of universities started by Christian denominations or groups of Christians. Uh, Luther, uh, in seeing the uniqueness and the, and the importance of the Bible, uh, said, we've got to get the Bible out, he, he, as he knew all along, but people don't read. So you see in the Reformation a huge infusion of energy in reading, learning to read. There's a huge infusion of education coming into Germany at that part and spreading out from Luther's teaching and so on. Got to teach people to read because the Bible is there and they can read it for themselves. Um, so huge uh, influence there, which I can't get into. But, but uh, Protestant denominations would be starting colleges, at least schools, all over the place. Uh, by this time, Thomas Aquinas' ideas had been become very strong in, in the, the, the church in Rome and at the University of Paris. were a very big part of the grievances that, that the leaders of the Reformation had against the Catholic Church, uh, which are much too complicated for me to uh, get into in length. Uh, but I'll, I'll touch on another person that these guys say is important, and I'd run into slightly, but not enough, his name in French is Pierre de la Ramée. Uh, English folks can't stand difficult things to pronounce, so it comes out Peter Ramus. I won't bore you with the French, but Peter Ramus uh, was a Frenchman. <clears throat> he would have been surprised to be called that, I'm sure. Uh, but he, he was born in 1515, lived through 1572. He was a professor at the University of Paris in the mid-1500s uh, uh, when the Protestant influence of Calvin was very powerful, more powerful than we can imagine now in France, particularly with the intelligentsia, uh, with the wealthy, with the powerful people politically and academically, uh, and with, with the academic elite in France. He himself very humble beginning, a poor family. He was an orphan. He tried to get to be incredible curiosity for studying and would try to get to, uh, to, to, to Paris to study. He was put, thrown out, pushed away a couple of times, fought his way back in, and then just worked tremendously hard and became a professor there. 
uh, he had converted to Protestantism in 1569. Uh, he wanted to seriously reform the University of Paris. Now, any of us who had much to do with the universities at all would know that um, reforming a university is a, way, a good way to make enemies. Uh, you touch everybody where they are tender and where they have a lot invested. And so he made lots of enemies, partly because of becoming a, a Protestant, but he'd been making enemies before that because they could see where his ideas were going. Uh, he made some pretty interesting suggestions, for radical suggestions. These are some of the things that got him into trouble. Uh, first, everyone, rich or poor, should have a chance to attend university and learn, learn the liberal arts in their own languages. Uh, and to quote him, it is a most unworthy thing that the road to knowledge of philosophy be closed and forbidden to the poor, even when they are wise and learned. That's his first point. Uh, second, he wanted faculty appointments to be made on the basis of merit, not on the basis of family or political connections. Again, pretty radical. Uh, another thing, he didn't want students to have to support faculty who are idle. Uh, again, radical. He also wanted state money to be used to help to fund the running of the university and pay students' tuitions. You know, to us, that sounds pretty, you know, uh, um, how could this be radical? But it was. But he got into deeper trouble still when he got into the, uh, the curriculum, reform of the content of the study. His basic quarrel was of the university as had followed Thomas's teaching and building a foundation on on the Greek philosopher Aristotle, uh, teaching Aristotle's ethics and metaphysics without allowing them to be criticized by the Bible. Uh, he taught that theology is living is, is the doctrine of living well for God. Living well for God. So again, he's not got this uh, head-trippy idea of learning theological facts and filing them in your brain, but, but uh, this is lived out. This isn't theology if it's not lived out and put into practice. Um, Uh, he saw theology as linked inseparably to all the other disciplines of ethics and so on. His view that Aristotle was, was wrong about God, faith, providence, sin, worship, and eternal life. Now that's quite a lot uh, when you think of the structure of Christian theology. Um, and instead he wanted to teach, instead of that, he wanted, instead of Aristotle, he wanted to teach the scripture to his students in the original languages. He complained that Aristotle taught all blessedness arises from within man. All virtues are within man's power and obtainable by man's nature, art, and industry. In other words, we can do it ourselves. We don't need strength from outside. We can, we're strong enough to do it ourselves. His view was that Aristotle's view of God was not a, our father, was not a father, was not a redeemer either. He says, how can we corrupt our students by uh, by giving uh, Aristotle to him as our, as our, our ideas of what we believe. Ramos' efforts to reform the University of Paris were completely unsuccessful, mainly partly because he was it was a very confrontational relationship he had with a lot of people, but also he was murdered along with thousands of Protestants at the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre that happened in August 26, 1572, which is... A, an incredible turning point in the religious history of France because here these followers of Calvin basically uh, were 
uh, hugely involved in the in, with the, the most educated and powerful people of uh, of France. But for that reason, were an offense to the church and to not just the church, but the, 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 the ruling families, the Medici family, the Habsburg family, and they saw their power being at risk if more if the whole leadership of the country would shift more toward Protestantism. Much more complicated than I've uh, 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 given you uh, a picture of here, but uh, uh, it was a, a, a carefully organized massacre in Paris, but also in the rest of um, France. As I look at it, and I've, I've run across this for, for years, uh, nobody knows how many people were killed, but the numbers I come up with are anywhere between 2,000 and 30,000 Protestants are killed. Uh, very selected, very uh, the, almost all the surviving Protestants either left the country or, or reconverted to Catholicism. Now, this is not, I want to say the Catholics were all evil. Protestants treated Catholics in pretty nasty ways as well. So I'm not trying to make a, make a judgment there. But this is a huge uh, turning point, pivot point, in uh, very relevant today uh, in, in terms of uh, the church in, in France. But anyway, he ended up having, Ramus had relatively little uh, influence within France, particularly given his place at the university, uh, but uh, quite a significant influence outside of France, in Northern Europe, and especially in England. Uh, his ideas, someone rescued a bunch of his books, some of them not yet published from his apartment as he was dragged out to be murdered, uh, but, but uh, they were published, and, and he was read carefully at the University of Cambridge in England, and because of that, a lot of his ideas get across the Atlantic and are very relevant to the beginning of Harvard and Yale, because that's, that's later still. So they're very, for, for Christians trying to put together how do we, how are we going to deal with education, uh, they were, uh, as late as, as late as this, the uh, starting of Harvard and Yale, they were very much uh, appealing to him. So I will turn now to North America. Harvard began in 1636, William and Mary in 1693, and between 1700 and the Revolution, as which is 1776, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Brown, Rutgers, and Dartmouth were all colleges started by Protestant churches, denominations. Georgetown started in 1789 uh, as a Roman Catholic college. So you see this huge commitment to education, awareness of education, need for education, that came across the water, came across the pond, and, and uh, is, is fascinating to see. Uh, what they valued. Uh, starting Harvard was just, they'd scarcely arrived, scarcely dried their feet from getting off the boat. They started a college. Uh, there was a powerful educational vision among the colonists. Each colony motivated, in part at least, not all of them, but uh, in part to find a place to express their religious freedom, to, to live the way we want to live, uh, uh, even in the midst of all their doctrinal differences and foibles. Uh, which some of them had been unable to do in Europe. These colleges that I just listed represented Anglican churches, Presbyterian, Congregational, Baptist, Dutch Reformed, and Roman Catholic churches, all in their own geographical region. But um, Then the, the Enlightenment, a major uh, entry into the whole area of ideas and, and religious history. Uh, and here again, I'm going to be so lightweight in terms of giving you what you would be nice to know about the Enlightenment. Um, 
It was a movement of ideas and attitudes which grew starting mainly from in the very beginning in the in the late 1500s, but mainly in the 1600s, especially in England, Scotland, France, Holland as well, Germany later. Uh, despite the opposition from all sorts of directions, it's still going on today and with profound influence on all of life, education included, today. Uh, two of the realities that I think were part of the cause of it, that, that, that motivated it, the, the rise of the Enlightenment, was a deep frustration with both, with both Protestant and Catholic churches in the turf wars uh, after the Reformation. There was a Hundred Years' War, which is, for a hundred years, they were, they, Protestants and Catholics were fighting each other. Uh, and now, historians now will say, and I've lectured on this too at another time, they're called the religious wars, the wars of religion, which is really a misunderstanding because uh, they were also the wars of how Europe became what it is today from much more tribal chaos. So there were families battling each one to make themselves what, what, the, what the Roman Empire used to be and for them to be the emperor of Rome, of the new Rome. In other words, we want to dominate all of Europe. And so it was a, it was a battle between ma- some of the major families. And a lot of times there were Catholics fighting Catholics, uh, Protestants, I'm not sure you have Protestants fighting for Catholic, uh, Protestants, but Catholic uh, uh, soldiers on one side joining the other. In 1527, I think, for example, uh, Charles V, who was the main Habsburg Catholic uh, emperor uh, there, he took his army. He, he didn't march north to Wittenberg to, to, to beat up on Luther's armies. He went south to, to south of Rome to fight an army of the Pope that was taking over land that he thought was his, and the Pope was wanting it. So he's fighting against the Pope in 1527 uh, rather than against the Protestants. So it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's a very confusing mixture of political and religious things. But in any case, because Protestants and Catholics were against each other, an inter, inter-Christian conflict, all Christians got credit for being at war with each other. Do you see what I mean? The Christian faith itself was was uh, dissed and uh, and uh, discredited uh, because of them. If any church, uh, how can any church have the answer to life and death if they can't go on without fighting each other? I mean, you, you can see that. You can you can see that and and uh, and understand it. Um, and so. Uh, that the hope of being without religion as well as with, without priests and ministers telling us what to do, theologians, without kings and queens telling us what to do, we might be able to do a decent job ourselves and make a better world. Uh, that was the Enlightenment hope. The other side that ever offered the Enlightenment a, a great uh, start was the scientific revolution in the same period, starting with, uh, not starting with Newton, but hugely motivated by uh, Newton's uh, views of gravity and views of light, uh, a huge catalyst for scientific inquiry. We can look at an otherwise mystifying world, observe it carefully, measure it, crank some numbers, and explain it. And, and who would have imagined that we could do this? And so, so much of the world became comprehensible or potentially comprehensible uh, in the shadow of, 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 uh, of the scientific revolution starting before Newton, but hugely accelerated uh, by him. Uh, experimenting, observing, applying mathematical principles to observations, and this can bear fruit for the common good, the way we live, for why we eat the way we eat, why we 
if you're doing things to do with medicine, so on, uh, that's going to improve our lives. The Enlightenment concluded uh, we don't really need the Christian church or the Bible to live well. If we're free from them, we can make a better world on our own. Uh, with the freedom to experiment and observe the world without kings and priests telling us what, what to think and what to do, uh, even when it came to morality, the Enlightenment more or less affirmed the Christian morality that they had inherited from the church. It said, we can see these th- things, these rules are sensible, but we don't need the revelation of God to tell us that. We can see it ourselves. Uh, we can say, see it from our observation uh, of nature. We can do it uh, in this way and that way. We don't lose our freedom by living under kings and priests and, and, and theologies. Uh, since since sin was scorned by that's something the church teaches us we don't need to believe that if we don't want to and we see evidence of, of human goodness after all um, and there, there's a, a, a temptation in the enlightenment to be to be drawn toward uh, utopias we can really perfect our race if you give us half a chance uh, and usually it was through education or revolution that would get us there uh, the bible or god's revelation would be treated more or less like, I've always thought of it as a this is an illustration, as an umbilical cord after you're born. You don't want to keep attached to it because it will cause you all sorts of problems if you drag it around behind you. If you want to grow up, cut it, leave it, and beyond, and live a perfectly good secular life. Uh, more, more free from all this, all this garbage you drag around. Uh, the big theme of the Enlightenment is freedom. Freedom to live uh, without God's authority tink- and without God's tinkering. So the big word is autonomy, self-law, uh, and, and this is what we want. Uh, the light enlightenment was, at least in the beginning, and for the most part, at the start at least, not atheistic. It was more that God had to keep uh, quiet and keep his distance, keep out of our way, not tinker with us. Uh, ha- having finished his job by creating the world, he needs to leave us alone and let us get on with doing the world better. Or you read a philosopher like Kant, who is just sort of at the end of the, of the, the one of the main pr- productions of ideas of the Enlightenment. Uh, we can believe in God, but we can't ever say that we know anything true about him. We can't say anything about him that we can know corresponds to who he actually is. So we can talk about God, but what we talk is all in metaphor. It's all in symbol. And, uh, and we shouldn't think that it corresponds to who he actually is, because that is beyond us, beyond our understanding. We can, we can talk about God, but we can't have knowledge of the God, of God as God actually is. Enlightenment impact on education. Many American colleges in the mid-19th century had departments of theology. By the late 19th century and early 20th century, none of them had departments of theology. Some of them started separate divinity schools to train ministers off off campus, as it were, the, from the rest of the of the university. Uh, that was those were sort of vocational schools for people who wanted to go into the ministry. Uh, but theology was was removed from colleges and, by and large, from from uh, curricula. Uh, instead, they had in the universities departments of religion or religious studies. This is a huge shift, if you stop and think about it. God has been sidelined. God has been shifted to the side. 
you see the study of, let me just contrast theology and religion. The study of theology assumes there, that there is knowledge about God that is possible, that is a possible object of study. It's possible to have knowledge of God and to gain uh, by studying it what, what that is and know more of who God is. But on the other hand, religion is a study of the human activity of being religious. It's a study about what people do, what they believe, how they do it, how they believe it. Just like human behavior, it, it, religion is, is, is a human activity, and you study you study a human activity in the same way you'd study sports, human activity of writing books, or human activity of collecting taxes, whatever you want to study. But studying religion in this way, you're not asking the big questions or raising the big questions for discussion. Is there a God at all that's actually there? And if there is, who might he be? And might it matter? These these assume that there's a God who's there that we're actually interacting with, that we actually think about who he is and what, what it is, rather than just observe how people behave and how people see things. We spoke before of God letting the palace of the honor in the, uh, the place of honor in the penthouse of the building of the castle go, uh, uh, go, go to God, Jesus, salvation, and theology uh, and the rest of the building beneath down that, that deals with nature down by the foundation is, 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 is the natural world and can be studied without reference to God um, with this the, the change that has happened now here again I'm skipping over all kinds of things but I think that in the, in the the penthouse of this this hierarchy of of, of, of uh, things to study is probably economics. Comes closest to I've read interesting things about the thing that comes closest to a universal religion in the world today is economics and how we deal with money and what happens and how it works. Uh, interesting thing to thought to to, to uh, think about. Uh, but, but study of human beings and human behavior is somewhere down here in that building. Uh, and, and that's where God comes in, somewhere lower down, to be studied as nature. Not as supernature, not as su- anything supernatural, but naturally. And there, of course, when, when, you, when you study God naturally, what you see hugely in, in universities today is, is the various human sciences, psychology, sociology, um, economics, uh, and so on, uh, used to describe how people believe in God, why they believe in God, for these psychological reasons, for these sociological reasons, for these economic reasons. Not because there's any God there, but because this is, these are the psychological, sociological forces on them that bring them to believe it. So they don't know, know this. Uh, this is behind their back. They don't know this because they think that there's a God that's really there. But we really know from the, from the wisdom of our uh, our, our discipline. This is what uh, this, this this is what makes people tick. And now, I mean, you can you can find a, books on the biology of God, meaning the the, 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 the genetic maneuverings that would explain belief in God. Uh, this is what Francis Schaeffer. If any of you have read Francis Schaeffer's book, the, the, the Escape from Reason, he talks about nature. When we give nature the natural world away to to the non-Christian world and can look at it without looking, letting God critique our views here, nature ends up eating up grace. Uh, Nature expands. You explain more and more naturalistically, more and more according to the rules of nature that we've figured out through science, and you can explain everything finally. There's no room for grace. There's no room for God who really exists uh, because he can be reduced to the study of psychology, sociology, or whatever.
Now, I've gone through a lot of things much too fast here. But, but uh, to shift a little bit more about the, the role of the Enlightenment in terms of the, the, the sort of social function of, of the Christian faith, uh, I'm going to quote one of our ex-workers here, uh, David Zink, was a, was a, um, a Libri worker some years ago. He, he had a fanciful construction that I've always liked. Um, uh, this is about the unholy bargain that Christian faith uh, makes with the typical university. This is not, he's not, this is not, this is his fanciful idea, okay? Uh, uh, the university offers the Christian faith some of the best real estate on the campus and money to put up an architecturally very, very impressive building that will have a steeple on it. Uh, and even offers, the university even offers to pay to keep a chaplain or two with full salary and pensions uh, in, in this building. Uh, and in return, the Christian faith offers to make appropriate religious services there, supply religious tradition, and above all, respectability to the activities of the whole university. We'll add the respectability of the Christian religion to all that goes on at the university. But a key point is that, that along with it, from the, from the Christian side, comes the promise to never question or challenge anything that's being taught in any department at the university. So part of the Christian side is a promise of silence. And let, what do we know about what's going on in all the different departments? What do we know about that? It's not our department. We have to do with God. Uh, and so everyone is happy. Uh, now, you may be beginning to get a sense of what my three authors, Glanzer, Alleman, and Rehm, uh, mean by the university has lost its soul. Uh, this is the kind of thing they would think of. Um, it, its soul has been, uh, had been some form or some version of Christ, a Christian view of reality for years and years and years. Uh, they point, point out that, you, uh, that in, in gaining freedom, they've thrown away God, who'd been the source of their soul, the soul of the university. That was the trade-off. For autonomy, uh, we, 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 uh, um, we, we, we throw away the, the, the foundation of, of what has meant the university, made the university uh, hold together. Um, now, we've got to think of a new soul, or think of a new soul. What is it, other, other souls? Uh, focusing on freedom, uh, freedom only allowed by marginal, marginalizing God. Um, and, and that's that's been a problem. They spent quite a lot of time working on what people come up with as as a way to be a foundation stone beneath the university that, that holds the university together, gives the people a common sense of mission. What are we doing here? What are we actually trying to accomplish? Um, I'll give you a couple of examples of strong form enlightenment ideas applied to university education, just to say some of the problems that have come up. Now, obviously, uh, well. Nothing is obvious. Uh, to start with the French Revolution, uh, this is an, a utopian idea, of application of, of the Enlightenment. Uh, it was, of course, a, a huge challenge against injustice, but the ideas that motivated many of the leaders behind it were very much uh, from Rousseau, from from those who are saying, we can do it, we can throw God and, and, and uh, uh, monarch out and make a much, much better world. Uh, we can create liberty, equality, and fraternity, the slogan of the revolution. 
But in no time, as you know, if you've studied any history at all, you have a reign of terror. And the very people who started the revolution get guillotined before very long. And, and it just is chaos and out of control because no one can control it anymore. No, they have, though they've put, they've tore down, torn down many of the statues and so on and, and, and uh, some of the main churches and put up uh, statues of the, the, that are to the goddess of reason. Taking down from Notre Dame, for example, all sorts of their statues, and the goddess of reason was there in the in the cathedral of Notre Dame, uh, and because and, we can do it better. Uh, ah, but but what happened is the reign of terror, and in the process, they closed down 24 all 24 of France's universities by 1793. All 24 were shut down. They tried to reconstruct them, uh, not in freedom because they weren't talking so much about freedom anymore, even as late as that, but in complete service, the university complete service to the needs of the state. That is, the state, the university is under the heel of the state. We're going to train people to do what we need militarily to strengthen ourselves as a nation. Nothing to do with academic freedom. Everything to do with the, the, the state will be served, which in Europe has been one of the main substitute souls for universities is somehow serving the, the good of the state that, that, that they're in. Not so much in America, because so many of the, so many of the universities were started out of Christian denominations. Uh, so they were, that, they were much slower to, to make that sort of a uh, connection. This became, in France, more extreme under Napoleon, because he took over after the chaos of the, uh, of the revolution in 1799. Napoleon took over, uh, not under the flag of freedom, <laughs> uh, but under his... Uh, attempt to build an empire in Europe destabilized not just France but much of the rest of Europe and between the start of the French Revolution in 1789 and the end of Napoleon's uh, attempted empire, 1815 60 of Europe's 147 universities shut down 60 of 143 were closed by the end of Napoleon's um, reign so not here we have enlightenment ideas which are uh, they were taken too deeply, too literally in a way, and, and control was lost. And, and, and so, so much of the Christian faith was thrown out. Uh, other expressions of the Enlightenment ca- ca- hang on to many more Christian or, or, or somewhat Christian ideas, at least. I'll just, uh, just mention one, one other much more timid example. Uh, Jefferson started the University of Virginia with high confidence in human nature, as he had. He was a much Unitarian with very believing that that Protestant Christianity had overemphasized sin, uh, but had the conviction that gentlemen do not need to be forced to do right things. Gentlemen don't need to be forced to do right things. So we thought freedom, we allow freedom for everybody uh, to, to think up their own curriculum, to behave themselves as they want to, and so on. But even at the start of, their, uh, of, uh, of the University of, of, of Virginia, it's intriguing. He was shocked and horrified by the way people behaved. And I... I um, there's an intriguing piece here by a, a historian uh, who's, who's traced the beginning of the, of, the, of the start of the university. Students brandished guns freely, sometimes shooting in the air, sometimes at each other. They secreted dirks and daggers and with little or no thought and less hesitation stabbed each other. They pummeled, kicked, and bit and gouged each other. They brawled with their own merchants. They scuffled with town wagoners. They cheated in every way, robbed graves, gambled at cockfights, beat slaves, cursed each other, Townsfolk professors, they vandalized property, even taking a hatchet to the front doors of the rotunda. 
that's that main central beautiful building there, um, and mutilated cows. They drank and drank and drank and rioted. They also attacked and beat professors. They even bombed one professor t- or tried to bomb him twice, um, all within the first year. Jefferson appeared before the student body and in tears and pled with them to behave. Uh, but he again, it was he. The whole idea is that he, they can be free. They're they're good and they will be uh, free and obedient. Uh, it's, another historian makes a, a, an ironic remark that that uh, if they well he did. They, they, the whole faculty threatened to quit unless the university got a, a, a campus police force to enforce some sort of order, which I think uh, Jefferson ag- agreed on early on, but which even things out a bit. But uh, this later historian says it wasn't really until quite a few years later that the, 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 the campus became more civilized because that was the time of the Great Awakening, and a bunch of converts to Christ through the Second Great Awakening came to be students at the University of Virginia, and ended up changing the culture there uh, in, a, in a much more Christian direction. And that ended up straightening the whole thing. That's, that's the view of one historian, anyway. It's a bit too precious, but he may be right. Um, a certain irony in that. From, I'll talk now about the, more the structure of the university, from the university to the multiversity. This is something that takes up a huge lot of this book, uh, uh, and and how, how this works. The University of Berlin started in 1810. It was a response in Germany to the explosive scientific revolution and the increase of sci- and information about science and technology that was out there that was unstudied and just experimented in all sorts of different places. The scientific revolution did not start in the universities. The scientific revolution started with rich lords of the manor who were bright and who were intriguingly interested and who would write to each other and started journals going back with each other. The universities were seen as dead in the water because they were still studying Aristotle and uh, problems like how the world has to be the way it is rationally and could not have been any other way just satisfying the logic of of Aristotle. And and so they had no help from universities, even Oxford and Cambridge particularly, at that point. Uh, But... but, uh, it, 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 this was free, free-wheeling people doing their own research and trading information with each other. So the people at the University of Berlin say, we need something, uh, an organized study of this. Um, and they began what's called the first research university. Uh, with necessary emphasis on teaching, but more on research into developing fields. The students were getting starting to get a little bit the short end of the stick here, uh, as the as the main deal was was research. Um, that meant more specialization had been happening, and more emphasis on graduate degrees in specialized fields. They removed theology entirely from anything to do with the curriculum. Um, it also pre- meant the professors had much less time with students maybe no time one-on-one with students in terms of what they were expected to do. Uh, and so you lose, they lost the kind of mentoring a relationship uh, with the emphasis on academic performance and publishing and mutual res- uh, material for their research. This, I have to say quickly, was very much in contrast, contrast to what was going on in this country at this, that time, where the, the professors were also mentors of the students. And um, obviously it would connect with one or the other and follow them all the way through. Um, and 
presidents of the college, of, of almost all the colleges, would teach us a course for seniors, which was basically how to live a good life. Can you imagine college presidents that teach a course, such a course in American universities today? Uh, you, know, uh, you, you, can, you couldn't imagine it. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that connected with the, the life of the college uh, was the, 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 the Christian idea that we're training people to be certain kinds of people. We're training people to be honorable people, uh, to live uh, lives that are good in God's sight, uh, as well as uh, good, good for them. Um, and University of Berlin had an enormous impact on Europe, and on the U.S., uh, a Harvard professor called Charles Elliott failed to get a promotion uh, as a chemistry and math professor at Harvard, was discouraged, but went to Berlin for two years to study chemistry at the University of Berlin. He returned after two years and got a teaching job at MIT. But in his free time, he published, he wrote and published a series of articles in the Atlantic Monthly about the f- future of education exuding enthusiasm what was going on in Germany and, um, and, and bemoaning how far behind everything in America was uh, in every aspect of education in the U.S. Harvard offered him the job of the president of Harvard College after writing these articles, <laughs> which he took in 1870-69, and which he held for 40 years till 1909. And he proceeded to make turn Harvard into the first research university in this country, followed by Johns Hopkins and Stanford. But it's a different whole idea of what we're doing in this here university. Uh, it's easy to see that universities needed to respond to changes in the culture and to enormous numbers of disciplines that were going to be important to, to learn about and to teach. things that need to be studied, things that need to be worked on in the hard sciences and the soft sciences and the humanities and also the professional fields. It's easy to understand how the need for specialization is really there. And that's not, a, that's not some godless, uh, terrible notion. The need for specialization uh, is required if we've gone very far in many fields. Uh, probably also requiring special technical terminologies comprehensible only to the initiated. So you have uh, uh, inevitable isolation and fragmentation into the university community, which comes particularly as they, as you begin to get research universities and this, this kind of specialization. Again, these guys in this book track uh, at great length on how this works and how this happened. This fragmentation has happened in a huge way in the time in the, in between then and now. So, so much of the, that is very, very common to hear, uh, I find today, within the university community is to claim this is not a university, it is a multiversity. A university assumes there's one thing going on here. It's unified. It's not unified. It's a multiple collection of stuff going on that has, and we try like mad to find out the unity behind it, but we can't. Uh, or in case one chancellor of the University of California says, this is a multiver- multiversity united only by a central heating system. <laughs> or another, again, from the University of California somehow. Uh, my faculty are a group of intellectual entrepreneurs held together only by common grievances over parking. 
but you, you, you get a sense of, of a, a, a university being a place where intellectual entrepreneurs can, can pitch their tent and do their thing and have their kingdom. Uh, and how does this, for, how, how can someone else in a different department question what's going on in the other department? This gets into the notion of silos, which probably most of you are familiar with the use of silos and siloing. You certainly have seen silos, you know, they, they are beside barns. There, there's still, still see any barns around here, not many, but uh, you occasionally see a barn with a silo. But this means that this, this is used to describe the process of education. It means uh, that, uh, each person in their, in their discipline is so isolated from other disciplines that it's as each, so they live and, and work in a silo, maybe with a few others. Silos are, what, 20 feet wide and 40 to 50, 60 feet high and no windows. No windows. Uh, uh, often academic excellence is measured by greater uh, investigation into smaller and smaller objects or issues. Uh, and and uh, so to be in a silo means in, in isolation. Uh, I can remember even myself being in college in, as an undergraduate, majoring in history, being so discouraged by siloing then. Uh, though I didn't understand that much about it, wouldn't have known what I was looking at. But just that, that those who were going on, who were achieving something in, in my major in history, were, seemed to be doing it by going deeper and deeper into smaller and smaller historical issues, which seemed to be just irrelevant. At least I didn't have any way of... Some of them actually now I've seen were more relevant than I thought, because uh, I, did, I didn't have any big picture. I just had uh, just just the... Uh, the product of the silo. When I graduated, I was not a Christian at the time, but I remember thinking there may be some people who are bright enough to make sense of all this, but I'm not, I'm not among them. I'm not one of them. And so when I graduated, I packed my books up, took them to the bookstore, and sold them all. So I thought maybe some people can do this, but I'm not one of them, and I'm going to enjoy myself. Uh, my life, God had different ideas, but not that I can't enjoy myself. But uh, different, different ideas than, than making enjoying myself being the main the main thing I did. Uh, a very different angle on fragmentation uh, is found if we ask the question that they that they very much want to ask: What is the university's main expression of itself to its graduates and, and into society at large? Think about that for a minute. What is the university's main expression of itself into to its graduates and the society at large. And they agree passionately, it is football. <laughs> it is football. Uh, and uh, maybe basketball, some sports and some colleges, but, but football has it. So you, you can't get that many people in a, that you get in a football stadium and a basketball arena. Uh, what can bring tens of thousands of people together with a shared passion to emote together in, in either agony, agony or ecstasy alternately? Uh, and, but be together in their agony and their ecstasy with others. They lament their own Baylor University, uh, allowing their football team to be so fragmented off from the professed values of the university that for four years they suppressed evidence of football players raping and sexually abusing women. For four years this went on, known by the coaches and so on, all the way down the line. And finally the, the roof was blown off and total scandal and so on. Uh, but this is at a Christian university, right? Um, and and uh, uh, that, that's an example of fragmentation. It's something that's important in itself, in its own deal, uh, that can exist that way in, in its own sense of importance and not be challenged and not be 
no one, uh, I, I hope no one knew what was going on. But, but um, anyway, that the, the our, our authors, our three authors, have have special grievance against the proliferation of professional administrators in the fragmented university. They have a whole chapter called the chief, pra- excuse me, chief fragmentation officer, the advent of the professional administrator, which is very interesting, really. Um, there can be an entrenched administrator class controlling, hiring, and curriculum. None of them teaching, not teaching students, but all of them in offices controlling the whole thing. Uh, uh, grievances that our administrators in many large universities in this country really lead the whole direction of the university. I think in some ways the uh, administrator, college administrators are behind the, the uh, they say we see it not so much a pursuit of wisdom, but this culture of this university is to make sure we, we back up the progressive social activist agenda of, in our university. Uh, and so we watch it is the university will end up stoking one side of the culture war. Uh, which are, so many of our big universities are exactly doing. And you can't get high, you can't get it. You think of the way Christian organizations, just by wanting a Christian to run their organization, you know, like universities, you want a Christian who's a student, a student leader, needs to be a Christian to run, to be, to be head of the Christian organization. That's, that is, uh, uh, not liberal. That is not welcoming everybody into the, into the institution of the university. So they were de, I don't know what you think. Defrocked or something, not defrocked, but it's, it's a, they were not allowed to represent the university. Now, some of the universities have gone back from that, but there's a court case that makes that actually legal. Uh, but that's easy, that, that's just natural part of things to, to make a ridiculous demand of a Christian organization uh, because it's very it's politically incorrect. Maybe someone was not allowed to be a leader who had a different view of sexuality than, than the Christian faith would hold. Uh, I had a friend who worked for many years at MIT, and he asked, uh, why do you think it costs so much to come here? And he says, it's the proliferation of deans. There's a dean for everything, and they keep multiplying. I'm sorry, this is not a direct quote, but this is almost a direct quote. Uh, they all need secretaries and assistants, who also need secretaries, and each with their own office. And they're multiplying and multiplying and multiplying uh, to have more things. And... and uh, these guys are saying that the, the deans and these administrators actually have a major handle in, uh, in, in fragmentation of the university because they each have their own task to do and they have no gra- grasp on a wider, wider picture. What's missing in all these, according to Glanzer, Alleman, and Rehm, is the soul of a university. There's no soul that holds all this together. Surely you've got to be able to have high levels of specialization, but still have a soul that, that will hold that together with other specialists and so on and have an overall, uh, a goal that that you follow, even though the the chemist will will have a different terminology than the physicist, but 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 uh, the, 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 their point really is that if God is the is the, the base, God is big enough for there to be room to everybody. Otherwise, each discipline becomes an idol and reduces all others to it. And there've been fascinating studies of how economics, if that's the if that's the God. That's the thing. You become some, something you use to reduce everything to economic 
theories about it. Uh, psychology is filled with the world, economic world with psychology being used to reduce everything to psychological principles and causation, uh, and, and then you, you have uh, an idol, a God substitute. And of course, economics or psychology or sociology or these things cannot adequately explain reality, uh, have it have crunch it all together to make it work and fit together in this reduction, re- reduced system. Uh, but that comes from having a God smaller than the true God and trying to make that God the, the, big enough to, to, to hold the, 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 the whole. What's missing here is, is the soul of a university that is big enough, that is great enough, a common identity, story, and mission for the university, which is not just for publicity, but is real, that really holds the minds and imaginations of people. Um, people have tried all sorts of things for it to be to be big enough. Maybe it's education itself, just the mission of education. Uh, and, and they quickly say no, because nobody can agree about what a good, good education is. How can you expect educators to agree about what is a good education in the, in the world today? Uh, or to make good citizens, you have the same problem. Who do you get to define what a good citizen is? Who gets to define that? Uh, or building democracy is the soul of the university. But how can you get agreement there? So what I'm saying is these these things that are offered as, as integrating points for the university are, are, are just other things that people disagree over. Or is it maybe, and I guess the, the cynicism can come out, uh, just to help, is the meaning of the university just to help people get well-paid jobs and become rich when they leave? Um, this is certainly a big one, and the way I see universities talked about so much of going to university in, in, the, in the school world, I mean, in the secondary school world, uh, you want to get a good university and get a good degree and so on because you'll get a good job. And what is a good job? It's a, it's a God that is a, is a job that pays uh, more than average or whatever. Uh, so that's surely there, but no one wants to admit that that's the main purpose of uh, having little rich graduates. Finally, here, restoring the soul, and I'm going to be very um, brief on this. Um, it shouldn't surprise us that our authors go back to Hugh of St. Victor to figure out what to do today. Uh, uh, and they do spell out a vision which confronts the problems they've outlined. How realistic it is that it could ever happen is another story. Um, I'd be fascinated to see. And it, it would be a very Christian, totally Christianly framed thing because that's what they're really talking about. How do we do this as Christians? Uh, I think that there's a very legitimate Christian idea also to have it very pluralistic, to have uh, have it built on Christian principles, but have a pluralism uh, involved in it as well. And maybe they would as well. But um, they repeat that it's only God that can be the foundation of the humans, uh, and the foundation and human beings made in his image, uh, where we can seek excellence without idolatry. That's a theme that comes through. All the way through. It's only with God that you can seek excellence without making an idol. And an idol means putting, making a God out of something much too small and ruining it, destroying it and destroying other things through it. Like some people would say, Marx took economics as an idol and what did he do? Everything reduced, everything is explainable by economic causation and he destroyed economics and did terrible economics. Um, anyway, you could see that in, with Freud with a bunch of other things where you see one one discipline grasped too hard and it's just like hanging on to a, a block of ice and gripping it hard to, to make sure you don't lose, uh, lose track of it and it just melts. Um, 
So it's only with God that, that, that you can have excellence without pursuit of excellence without idolatry. If God is the creator of our universe and also the revealer of how we are to live in it, we must figure out a way that the revelation of God can enlighten and challenge every discipline uh, in its own way. In other words, there's no discipline that, that doesn't need the revelation of God brought to it and, and uh, put in the perspective. It's not as if you have Bible verses that you attached attach to verse to different proofs in mathematics or something like this. Uh, but but, but you, you can still, uh, there are many Christians who are very hard on Christian implications for mathematics. Um, they suggest that every professor and every subject should have the same, have some significant study in theology. Now, this is getting pretty radical. Uh, imagine requiring of a university fa- faculty that they put in, say, at least half a year study of straight theology. Because um, he wants everybody to be connected to the, they want everybody to be connected to the, the, um, to the soul, to the God who is the, who is the, at the bottom. Uh, at the same time, each professor in his own or his or her own field would need to take time to make their work comprehensible to the rest of the faculty who are not in their specialization. So the, the idea is that theology must speak to and learn from all departments. See what, see what he's trying to say. Theology must speak to and challenge, but almost must listen to what's going on in each department. Professors and teachers would be seen as whole people, not just as someone who did write this resume, uh, and would live out their faith in a full way. He, I think they would go, they didn't get develop this much directly, but they would talk about a mere Christianity. They criticize the consequences of denominational, uh, of Universities built on denominational churches and people required to, to believe all, every, all the doctrinal minutiae of the whole of the denomination. And that makes them, that separates those from other Christians, but who teach at a university for, who was started by a different denomination, who have a different view of the sacraments, or who have a different view of baptism, or have a different view of something like this. And so, a mere Christianity is, means, uh, it isn't just C.S. Lewis's book, Although it is that, but it's, it means that we take a view of Christianity, we, we, we embrace the central, most important teachings and let others uh, alone and live with the differences with people who disagree with us. For example, Libri. We don't, we don't have a narrow uh, set of doctrinal beliefs. We have a very broad set of doctrinal beliefs. But we have people in Libri who have different views of baptism. We have people in Libri who have different views of the end times different views of whether women can be ordained to eldership in the ministry. Uh, and we go on with disagreements, but we love each other and we carry on. And, and uh, I think we've only been able to carry on because we've been able to bend on and get on with each other with issues that are not the Trinity, the atonement, the, you know, the, 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 the real building blocks of the center of the faith. Uh, and I, I have a, they actually, I will take a second and say, they, they think that the one of the reasons that the Christian faith at the time of the Enlightenment, when the Enlightenment was really, say, coming into this country in the early uh, 19th century, didn't have more of an ability to stand against it was that it could not stand together enough with a mere Christianity. But people looked at at 
Christians in the academic world and they say, but they're Baptists and they have a different, they can't speak to Presbyterians. And they can't, and in other words, the, the, the authority of Christians to speak for God was undermined by Christians' inability to work together with other Christians. Do you see? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's understandable. Uh, and I don't have a, a neat uh, solution to how you do that, but that, that's something to be aware of and as we think of something like a university. A lot of people, a lot of strong people working together uh, for, for a common cause. Uh, it's, it's very important. Um, so um, a, a mere Christianity, uh, they would be expected to mentor their students and spend time with them. They, they must be, uh, to quote them, must be experienced identifiers with and imitators of Christ. Experienced identifiers with and imitators of Christ. Uh, they put special emphasis on now helping a student understand who they are as images of God. And with that, uh, within that identity, there's room for many other lesser identities, such as one's identity and connected with one's sex, race, family, workplace, or whatever. Uh, but I think they're important that, that one of the most important areas now is anthropology. What is the view of who, who are we as humans? Uh, the Enlightenment uh, has said we can answer all the questions, has no idea how to describe what a human being is. Mm-hmm. A human being is just molecules, and yet human beings do stuff that molecules don't do. Uh, you can't just say, because the, the big reductionist would put us down right down to biochemistry. That's an explanation of who we are as human beings. But look at what... what uh, who we are that biochemistry cannot describe and cannot cope with, cannot understand. Um, so we believe in more than uh, than biochemistry and, and, and the need for a far better explanation. They also want edu- edu- education to include uh, learning the right loves, the right desires, the right priorities, as taught so well by Augustine, but also forgotten today. By almost everybody today, except for the advertising industry, um, we need to be instructed in our desires, in what we love, what we, what we, uh, what motivates us. They say we would insist that it, that encountering the emotive and motivative power of, of stories is a first essential element to providing a context and motivation for practice. That is, they want to use stories in this. Uh, fictional or imaginative university they're creating, uh, and they see and understand the role of stories to to uh, uh, to speak, to build motivation. Otherwise, you ask, what? how do you teach desire? And people have a blank expression on their face. You can't directly teach desire, but you can do a lot of teaching that affects desire. Uh, so I'd want to ask, do you want to go to the, do you want to go to university? Uh, I ask this because many Libri students uh, are thinking about it, haven't been. Many, many have been for a year or two and are not sure they want to continue. Um, and that's a much bigger question than I will even dream of tackling tonight. But it's worth thinking about. Uh, uh, if you are one of those rare creatures who, in their early 20s, knows what they want to do with their life, that can be really helpful to know what you want to do with your life. Um, you may decide, no, I don't need a university degree. I don't need to go to college. Great. You're way ahead of the game if you know that. Uh, but if you're not sure or not sure you want to go back or whatever, um, 
and you don't know what you want to do, but think you may want to, then I think there's a lot to think about. I've always thought, well, for a lot of ways, the place that you end up, a university degree is going to be, give you more freedom. Uh, but I think a lot of people soldier through a university degree who don't need it and don't use it uh, and shouldn't have been pushed into it. So I, I have no generic universal advice at all on this. Uh, nor do I have advice on whether to go to Christian college or not a Christian college, because I think sometimes Christian colleges can be discouraging to people. Sometimes can be, they can be a great encouragement. Sometimes a non-Christian college can be can strip people of their faith. Sometimes a non-Christian a secular college can stimulate their faith and the challenge that they have to their faith by going to school at a, in, in a non-Christian setting. Um, I think being grounded in the basic truths, though, of the Christian faith, not just believed in, but lived out uh, before going, is really helpful. Uh, I, I remember Schaefer saying, Francis Schaefer saying, people need to come to Libri before they go to university. And I still agree with that. If not, if not that, uh, not just come to Libri, but... Uh, uh, really work out what you believe and what's going on in the modern world that I'm going to be stepping into uh, before you go into it and get tackled by it. Uh, I, I think the, as I listen to the, read this book, I, a lot of what Labrie stands for is what they're calling for. They don't know, there's no quote of Schaefer, no mention of Labrie at all. But the, the spiritual reality and the connection with the culture uh, and, and the, 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 the the disaster of fragmentation are, are very much what Labrie has struggled for from the start. Um, I think I did it backwards. I struggled through university without anything catching fire to me except for sports. Um, but then I stumbled into Swiss Labrie the year after I graduated and suddenly saw my silos got connected or the walls got brought, battered down of the silos. Uh, and suddenly learning became exciting to me for the first time in my life. After finishing college, what a anyway, uh, what, what a, a sad thing to boot a good education. Not completely boot it, but but it's I uh, could have learned a lot more. Um, and again, I wish I'd gone to Libby before, or at least during, or something like that. Or I just backed up and seen. But I wasn't a Christian at all. I didn't know what what I was running into. But there's a huge need, I think, to really think not just what do I uh, what do I Believe in in some depth, but what is this? What is the setting I'm walking into, and and uh, and, and and understand something of that? Uh, we're living at a fascinating time. Universities are in trouble, but that is not new. It's intriguing to me that the oldest universities have lasted longer than the nations in which they live, rather than the governments of the nations they live. Yeah. I mean, everywhere, Italy. Uh, France, England, the U.S. even. Uh, most of the, the, the oldest universities happened before the revolution. Uh, England, all sorts of chaos after the start of that. Uh, so the universities have persisted, have kept on going. Uh, a mark of the tremendous commitment there's been for, to teach the younger generation something of what we value going in, into the future. Uh, that's a very non-postmodern perspective on it. But I, I think that still is the only thing you can explain it with. Um, there's a, a, a huge human desire to pass on what we value. Um, 
Glanzer, Alleman, and Rehm have made an ambitious and deeply Christian contribution uh, as their subtitle reads, Unifying Christian Higher Education in a Fragmented Age. And I think it's been very, I've found that the the book very, very useful and very stimulating. So I want to stop there and throw it open for anybody who wants to run with it, throw something at me, whatever, whatever seems appropriate. Yeah, Marty. Um, do they think any of the Christian colleges are doing a better job at this, or are doing a good job, or uh, what do they think about this? They're smart enough to not say. And they don't. See, the only thing they say about Baylor is some reference to this, to the, to the sexual scandal, and that being a, a horrendous example of uh, of fragmentation, mm-hmm. of isolation, the whole the whole party, which is the big upfront. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even mention you know, television. Football is on television. You know, it's not just big big uh, um, stadiums. Yes. Uh, our men's Bible study just finished uh, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Oh, wow. And uh, it's well a very appropriate well because he, he, just like Luther, they both kind of started off with a, we're going to fix this thing kind of mentality and then just basically end up having to leave and start something new. Um, do they kind of come at it from a, like, look, we can fix the university that exists, or we need to start all new ones. Like, which way do they mean? They don't. I, they don't say. Um, I, I think, just given the whole thing of uh, requiring professors to do study theology first, this kind of thing, um, which would be just incredibly difficult practically to do. Um, I think it would be very difficult to start from scratch. Although you could start maybe very small. Uh, I, I think they would probably, and they are both, they are, the three of them are teaching at, at Baylor and Taylor still, so they're obviously aiming at introducing what they can into already existing university settings. Now, those, both those universities are, are try in their... Um, Stated purpose to really be a Christian university with allowing the Bible to speak into different disciplines and different areas. Uh, how that much they succeeded that is another whole story. Um, but I'd be intrigued to know how they were perceived, how this book is perceived by their colleagues, uh, how, how, uh, um, especially the church, especially the the deans and administrators, because <laughs> 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 whoa, uh, uh, yeah, I think it could be either way. I, I, I think it's a very helpful thing to, if one is involved in a, in a school or university already. To say, well, what could we work in? What could we work toward? Uh, I, I would I would think it to be something to be an encouragement to either project. But the idea of starting from scratch would would appall me. Uh, in terms of uh, that, that, that uh, so much is new, but that's me. I'm not an entrepreneur. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah Hallie. Cool. Um, I'm off to Taylor University this fall, actually. Which oh, good. Is crazy that this author is. Yeah, which is cool. Um, you should look out for a man called Reem then. Okay, Reem. <laughs> okay. um, my question was, and you don't have to. Maybe there isn't an answer for this, as this is much more institutional, but. 
is there anything that the individual, aka myself, uh, can do to bring further unity and um, besides the institutional side, is there anything that the individual can do to do that? I think being aware of the problem is a problem is a start of fragmentation to go across boundaries um, to uh, I, I always am coveting people who have who have some setting where they can get together with people of different disciplines I mean this is where something I, I, I covet teaching say someone teaches at the University of Virginia now where where this guy James Davidson Hunter is a sociologist there. He's one of the main sociologists of religion in the country today. Uh, but he started a thing going, I was part of it a couple of times because I spoke down there. Once I was part of it. Uh, and uh, they have a get-together. It's, I don't know if it's every Tuesday or not, for lunch, bag lunch. Uh, somebody speaks with people from philosophy, literature, psychology, uh, political science. Everybody who wants to can come together and hear someone speak and have a discussion. Uh, and it's an encouragement of interdisciplinary communication um, in anybody who's interested. Um, I think it's anybody's interested. You they maybe have to be invited. They published that journal. Oh, yes. They, they published a thing called the Hedgehog Review, which is an interesting, mm-hmm. uh, uh, very, very interesting journal that is interdisciplinary in terms of what is going on. I'll, I'll give you a copy to look at if you want. We, we may have some here, but... but uh, uh, yeah, I think that's that's a uh, an important thing. Uh, He's but, a Christian. He's a very clear Christian. Oh yes, yes, he is. And 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 the, not all the people who come to that are Christians, but the the people running it are are, are Christian ac- academics. Uh, but there's lots of people there who, who believe anything under the sun. Mm. I, I'm not sure what what uh, I think you 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 want to go and see what see what it's like and see what you how you can. Uh, fit in or not or whatever uh, but I think being aware of this being aware of the things that separate uh, being aware of the, and, and it, it, at Taylor you're not going to be hitting the radical relativism of, 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 a, of a secular university uh, so it's not as if you had to get prepare yourself to to deal with what had happened to the word tolerance and things like that uh, and and uh, uh, yeah, I'd say to play it by ear and, and keep us in touch. Okay. <laughs> Elliot, yeah. Uh, I have the impression that uh, universities in Britain have had less fragmentation. They, they seem to be more, have changed less than the ones in the U.S. That may be true. I, I don't know. Um, Do you think there's, I mean, both countries have had the Enlightenment and both have had the same... Specialization. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a way in which Oxford and Cambridge, you think of Oxford and Cambridge particularly? Yes. Yeah. Because well, St. Andrews, I mean, yeah. that's our experience. Yeah. It's interesting, the University of London was started to be a University of Berlin for England. Uh-huh. It was, it, and it was before, because it got to be a research university as such, before Oxford and Cambridge got moved in that direction. But in many ways, Oxford and Cambridge haven't budged. The, the college system, are all, say, the college system is a huge continuity thing, yeah. uh, and how, how 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 things are gone. So I think the there's a, there's a, a conservative uh, leaning in the way it's structured uh, there, and the, your your 
you go to a certain college uh, that is also part of Oxford or part of Cambridge or whatever. But but uh, uh, I think you 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 end up relating to a smaller group of people that way and, and who are into all sorts of different things. But the uh, lectures are open. Yeah. To everyone, so it it lends itself to. Uh, yeah, it could be. Yeah, that's right. It's like, Esther, did you have it? Uh, I was thinking about Hadley's question. Um, as someone who taught general education classes yes. as a freshman in a university, um, in a liberal arts university, yeah. I think, I don't think that's always well done, like the GE courses of liberal arts, but I think it would help students to know what these are for. And one of the, re- one of the things that they are for is to stop so much fragmentation and specialization and say, like, hey, look at all of these things that are happening and, and things that people are studying mm-hmm. um, that are relevant. So so I would say take your GE classes seriously because they're not your major classes. Yeah. Um, they're hugely controversial. I'm not sh- quite sure where the argument goes. Uh, there are a lot of people dissing them. Uh, right. m- maybe that's... I mean, it depends on... Like, I think it depends on which... How they're being done. So, yeah. Also, so yeah, I'm sure it varies across the yeah. country a lot. But I think, um, at least in my experience, a lot of students came in and was like, why do we have to do this? Yeah. I'm here to study economics. Why do I have to do yeah. lit class? Yeah. Um, and for, you know, 24-year-old me was like, because and there's a huge I, mean, I didn't even get into the whole uh, drift away from humanities and into stem mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, it's it's um, that's that's uh, I think discouraging but as a number of people have pointed out to me, humanities have deserved it. Oh, yeah. Have deserved being abandoned. <laughs> what do you get in the history course of just what a trash heap America is and always has been? You had, you know, that may be the, that may be the main thing you get in American history courses. And, 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 uh, literary criticism. Yeah, and, and if, if literature is studying, de- is doing deconstruction of pointing putting yourself to decide what the author really meant, though he didn't think he meant that. Uh, <laughs> but he, what he really meant, because this is what I can see he was trying to protect. You know, if that's, and, and I, I heard huge grievances in the, in, the, in the 90s from people who believed in stories. And they weren't allowed to study stories and, and what the stories mean, but they had to deconstruct the, the, what the professor, what, what the, the author was really doing, but didn't realize it. You know what I mean? Whoa. It's, and so I think I think uh, the humanities have shot themselves in the foot. So I'm, I'm not sure how much sympathy we have. But on the other hand, on the other hand, it's it's a huge, um, a, a huge thing. Uh, yes. Wouldn't you say this problem is more symptomatic of the fact that we all go through 12 years of school where we have math period, and then you leave that, and you go to English period, and then you leave that, and nothing is connected. Yeah. on any level, ever. So how do students get there and think, oh, yeah, well, like it's already been fragmented, their entire schooling. Mm-hmm. And then the teachers that are there, their schooling was completely fragmented as well. So how are people going to all of a sudden have this 
like outside of maybe the classical Christian movement of, you know, trying to have God be the one single unifier between all things that we study, there really is no unifier between all things that we study. I mean, you can make the argument for science and math, you can make the argument for history and literature, you can loosely do that, but once you don't have God in the middle of all of that, there is no unifying force for everything that we learn. So, and, I mean, and sometimes like, God isn't allowed to be a unifying force, but it's just something you could be pious about. Right, but even if you use, we're all humans. Well, I'm a human that doesn't want to read. I just want to study science. So, yeah. you know, I, you can't really make that case for me. I mean, we went to engineering school. We're like, who the heck would ever major in English? No, what would you do that for? Now, <laughs> now I totally get the humanities argument that you're making because, it, like, it is horrible just being an engineer without reading. You know, without, without the humanities, it's horrible. So I get it. And I love it now, but I just don't know how we teach it. Like, it, it seems like the whole system is broken from, like, kindergarten on. It's fragmented. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, without teachers who, I mean, that's why teachers are so important. Without teachers who do believe in something more integrated. Where are they? I had to homeschool my kids to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think people are trying. I, I think it's a, yeah. It's hard to hard to say, and, and I think the church can do more than it has done. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are different groups that have tried to influence, bring an influence there, but but uh, it, it, in some ways, the way things are tied together. Well, no, it, I mean, that's not true. I, I'm just saying it, it, it's easier once kids get a bit older to know to how, how to make the ties between different things. But that it shouldn't be that way. It should be it should be uh, with young kids too. Uh, that God, God has given us a world where you add two to two and it makes four, no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. And and there's something really solid about creation uh, that you can that you can stand on. Uh, but that's a that's a challenge to know how to do it. Uh, yeah. But it's but but uh, we, wherever we are, we've got to just start where we are and do as best we can. And and uh, again, and, and just. Believing in God, just being a Christian, doesn't answer it because all sorts of Christians don't have the slightest determined to 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 do just what you're calling for. Mm-hmm. You right. see the integration of different things. Right, because they believe there's some neutrality out there in the world. Yeah, that's just. And, it's a myth. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so it's it's uh, not not uh, not something even worth doing. Yes, Peter. Uh, to, to the person who asked it, how how's the book received? I'm looking at it email from one of the authors and, uh, and uh, the author who could answer the question dodged the question oh dear so, uh, that's always the way isn't it uh, so uh, uh, I got into a, a, uh, a conversation with Todd Green but uh, Glazier is nowhere to be found oh really oh dear so, uh, but, but also you know about the, the schools that are trying this at a macro level some of some people may have heard of Ralston College out of South Carolina, and then the University of Austin uh, in Texas uh, is trying something like this. But again, th- those are very very micro uh, systems, yeah. and that may be where, where it has to, you know, begin and end. Yeah. But uh, you know, about the fragmentation, you know, I was thinking that, uh, you know. The, the number of colleges and universities in the United States might be matched by the number of denominations <laughs> because they just 
continue to bifurcate yeah. and bifurcate and shatter and fragment. Yeah. And, uh, so I think you know, it's it's like the, what's the saying the uh, pot calling the kettle black. Uh, you know, for Christians to talk about the fragmentation in education is just well, look at us, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I don't know if there really is a solution to that. Uh, not at the systemic level, but you know, certainly at a, at, at the local level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, that that just may be where we need to work. But this, but yeah, I, but I think this, these sort of ideas can can and do work across denominational lines, and so the denominations don't. So so there's a lot of a lot of action interaction between uh, people in different denominations. I'm thinking of the different denominations of people that show up at Labrie and and get something of this direction. Uh, the, the group that I I am surprised they don't reference at all in the book is the sort of thing coming out of of Holland. Um, the sort of neo-Calvinism of, of, uh, from the Free University there and that's coming to Canada but has a, a huge notion of, of um, a very sophisticated philosophical system of, of uh, if you can get, get your head around it uh, uh, how things work together all under God and, and uh, have done some very very interesting work but, but are somehow Stuck maybe in a lot of around here in, in the sort of Dutch Dutch immigrants world in, in, in their in their settings, but but uh, uh, I'd love to set them some of them down with with uh, uh, these guys because they some of them have done some really interesting work. Uh, and then just, just to the uh, fragmentation of education, I mean I'm a product of public schools and. Uh, Maybe this is just a manifestation of grace, but I, I think I came out of New York public school thinking, you know, what an amazing world this is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't think I was overtly looking for that, but it just sort of began to coalesce within me that uh, all these things do kind of fit together. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, again, it wasn't some sort of purposeful epiphany it just sort of uh, percolated up mm-hmm. from, from my 12 years in that school system yeah mm-hmm. oh, that's good I'm sure, I'm sure many of us could yes Chris um, I just have a question about kind of the fragmentation of the university things um, I'm a little confused as to how inserting or, or having God as your foundation would somehow allow interdisciplinary communication between people Especially because especially universities don't seem to be noticeably different from secular universities. Yeah, um, I mean, I think what they would say, and I think this is, um, you could think of theoretical answers to that 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 don't necessarily happen in practice, because all sorts of things are possible that don't happen in practice. Uh, but I think their angle, which I, I do think is something really true to this, with God as your foundation. Your discipline can't be the explanation for everything. Your discipline can't be the thing to which you reduce all other understanding. If I'm a Christian, my and my field is psychology, I'm not going to allow psychology, psychological theories to explain everything so I can't 
relate to what the sociologist says next to me. I'm going to temper the degree to which my discipline is an explanation for everything. Uh, and the problem with the idolatry is that it's, it's, it's hungry. It, 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 everything you've sacrificed, everything to it, and then it destroys it. Uh, and so uh, there, there ought to be, uh, Christians ought to be able to say, Marx had some good, very good insights, but his whole economics is just, is, it was ruinous. Uh, and uh, my Christian faith enables me to say that and say because he has a totally wrong view of human nature and, and, and uh, is totally naive as to what human beings can do. Uh, so um, that, that explains why it ought to be possible, but whether to, to have it work in actuality, you need people willing to do it. You know, you know that's, that's the rub. You need, you need people able, humble enough to do it. Uh, because it's a, it's, a, it's a question of humility as well, uh, and and who see the vision of doing it, uh, but but that's where I, I so because Labrie where so one of the reasons that I I uh, so appreciate spending time with Schaefer is that he's a, he's totally out of the silo. He's a complete generalist. Everything I want to I want to put everything on the table and see how it connects with anything else to a fault sometimes. I mean he doesn't get everything right, uh, but but. Uh, it was such a relief, such a change from what I'd experienced in college uh, that I thought, whoa, this is something else again. Uh, I may have to really take this more seriously than I had thought, um, which I did, actually. But, but uh, it's, it's, uh, there is a dynamic there that ought to be pushed more, I think, by Christians, that, that uh, you can... It will stop how far you go as a psychologist and what you what you claim to be able to to explain in your psychological categories and say well maybe not maybe I have to watch out for what I'm, I'm trespassing over someone who's a biologist I'm trespassing someone else or someone else who's who's an ethicist uh, and I've got to deal with biology I've got to deal with ethics also as well as the psychological theory so it's all these human science uh, fields are, are just have enormous numbers of variables all attached. And we need to be open to be to learn from all. I mean, the big new one is brain science, but I don't want to give the whole all ground to brain science, you know, because some some people will say everything is explainable by the brain, and so there's no such thing as mind or anything like that. It's all brain. If we knew more, we'd be able to, to figure it out. Uh, no, I don't think so at all. Uh, so the the theory is there, or the idea is there, but but. Um, we need maybe the vision to do it. But things like this thing at the University of Virginia, mucking in people together who have to communicate, who want to, who, you know, who want to communicate to each other, is just a great thing to start. And I think it can be done because it, it happens a lot right here at Labrie. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's, not a, it's not a hopeless thing. Yeah, Ben? Just um, one thought. It seems like the, in part the fragmentation is due to people who have... gotten their PhDs, gotten tenure positions in their departments, and so much of the the whole process of of reducing every other discipline to your own, it's it's power dynamics. You're you're protecting your own right to exist. You're you're defending the legitimacy of your discipline. And, um, but you can be sure there's, there's, there's lots of professors out there that that do like like you're like you're saying, and, and some of the, the uh, stories that Andrew Fellows has told, being in Cambridge, is a hunger to interact with people in different disciplines, 
and to and part of that hunger is surely like the desire to to have a more overarching understanding of reality yeah. um, that isn't just reductionistic. Um, and I'm just wondering whether like one of the potential areas to be of influence is among people getting their PhDs, like pe- people who want to end up being university professors or research or whatever, but just but aren't there yet. And not, and one of the things that has just totally turned me off from ever even considering that is just is is the the need to specialize so minutely to have something original and new to say. <laughs> you have to you have to say like you said, go go deeper and more and, and more small in order to say something that's never been said before. Yeah. Um, that is just and it, I you know, I know quite a few people who've started their PhDs and, and chucked it for that reason. It's just so life destroying and you yeah. can sense I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not actually I'm heading into a smaller and smaller world that is harder and harder to communicate across disciplines. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't know whether it's just And what they what they're saying here, which I guess is they have a way of tracking this, but Nobody ever reads what you write. Nobody pays any attention to it. Except except maybe someone else who's doing the next dissertation that has to comment on it or just prove it or whatever. But they have ways of tracking with computers who has actually checked this thing, who has looked at this. And maybe half a dozen people have read this dissertation. But that's, that's... that's great. That's huge. That's best, bestseller status. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, and and but what you say? Would you say? And what Andrew has found, which is that people working the PhD are very very lonely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're cranking along all alone in a little, and uh, thinking all alone. And he's he's tried to loosen this up and get people talking to each other, which is great. Another side to it, I did, I wanted to talk about here, but I went on much too long anyway. Is, is that over this whole thing and connected to the need for a soul is there's a huge meaning deficit in the whole culture uh, that is hungry for a an underlying uh, foundation and soul. And that's we've got to be aware of that and aware, and aware of trying to appeal to that and help people know that we can talk about that. And that's what I think is was very fruitful and... and uh, uh, so there's all sorts of things that are not uh, you know, what they ought to be. You had something going here, yeah? Yeah. Well, just to to build on that, I guess I I mean my mind is sort of thinking here just about ways to align interests within the academy with this kind of a vision. And two things that come to my mind are requiring candidates who are applying for a job to explain how their field relates to the mission of the university and then requiring candidates for tenure to write a paper explaining yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, that is... Yeah. It's very hard yeah. to get people who have spent all this time in silos, you know, years yeah. writing a dissertation on, you know, learning more and more about less and less until they know everything about yeah. nothing yeah. To, to be able to explain the whole. But that would at least give them a kind of interest in... Yeah. And doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The challenge yeah. there is that it takes administrators who are willing to do that and who are willing to take flack from a faculty that doesn't understand the whole yeah. <laughs> to demand this yeah. of, of people across the university. Um, but, but I think what these guys would say would be who is able to say what the mission of the university is. 
Yeah. Because that's what's lost. The few people who understand it the best on the faculty, they don't want to go into administration. Yeah. And the people who like administration don't tend to be the types who can think broadly about this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think there'd be a lot of, a lot of creative interviewing would be is, is definitely called for you, right? <laughs> yes, Peter. Uh, I, I don't think these authors go into it, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think part of the problem also is uh, it used to be that the dissertation was sort of a capstone degree that came much later in one's career. Uh-huh. So after you had developed a way of seeing things, then you would do yeah, when you actually had something to say. Yeah. Whereas now it's been pushed back, you know, to, uh, every, you know, ever younger. And I understand it in the math and the sciences because very often those are when people are the most creative in those areas. Mm-hmm. But I think in the humanities, if PhD candidates were being produced at age 40 or 50 rather than at 22, oh. 23, it would be uh, much more interesting you know, for all concerned. Yeah, and I think different universities in different countries are different. I think that's. I think maybe in Holland is that. Is that true in Holland as well? Well, um, in some areas, you have to get your PhD before you even get a job. <laughs> yes. So it's just um, like more people. First, you only needed a bachelor, and you also needed a master to get yeah. somewhere and out sliding towards also getting your PhD before even getting a job. So that means that you're still pretty young then. Uh, yeah. Or maybe not. <laughs> there may be a 40 before you get a job. That's kind of a long time to wait for a job. <laughs> yeah. But that's, I, I just think of, of Hans Ruckmacher, who is a, a, a professor at the Free University of Amsterdam who's involved in starting Libri in Holland. And, and uh, he... I think got his doctorate degree after teaching a long time, hmm. and it was sort of a, a great thing, and he did a dissertation for it. But but uh, it was a way after it would have been in, in an equivalent American university. I don't know how that worked, but no, I think it's nice if you if you get your PhD on a well further in your career, yeah. then you just have more experience and maybe a broader view and. It's not just a part of the necessary education. Yeah. It's just something yeah. where you're also maybe more interest, interested in the yeah. topic. Now it's just a ticket. I mean, to teach at a university is a ticket that you need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to the Enlightenment, because I mean, even in history, but also in your outline, it's sort of like the the first departure, it seems like, from what university is, like all under God and for God and... You know, started by Christians in North America, but like the Enlightenment is like you were describing is the first time they try to explain all things without God, right? Reason, empiricism. Did did Christianity just have a major apologetics fail at that moment? Then not like say, well, where did your reason come from? Where did your senses come from? God, right? So, what, like, did we just fail to point out the ridiculousness of that as a Christian world? Or did we point it out, but they were so brazenly, like, just callously wanting to get rid of God so badly that they didn't listen to the apologetics at the time? Like, how did we, how did we let it go off track at the Enlightenment? 
Boy, that's a complicated one, I, and I really can't give an adequate answer. I can only take a, a jab at it um, because it's hugely... Somehow the momentum behind the Enlightenment was enormous. And France initially, but, but also um, people like Hume and so on in Scotland. Uh, but but um, they thought they were riding on the authority of science uh, and the scientific method and the confidence we can have in scientific truth. And they looked at the hypocrisy of the church and they thought, what's this going on? What, what are we? What, and and the huge injustices that were also there to be revi- kicked against and overthrown, uh, and so it's it's uh, that there's a there's no one track into it, uh, but it was um, built up enormous momentum, and once you get momentum going, you've got a lot of social pressure that's hard to resist, and and. Uh, yeah, uh, 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 Christian apologetics in the all the way line along um, I'm not sure how I mean Jonathan Edwards tangles with it with the Enlightenment uh, he has some very good things so he's aware of it but that it's, it, at that time it's mainly in Europe still but he's aware of what's going on mm-hmm. uh, uh, then there's some finally well there's one criticism that I've uh, that is, that's quite interesting to me um, which says that Christians doing apologetics thought that the main thing they had was biological diversity that it was impossible to explain for anybody else uh and how do you how do you explain just human beings, the animal world, the incredible diversity of it all, and the and the unbelievable complexity of of animal life and human life? Uh, no one can just say how is that going to happen until 1859, right. mm-hmm. and then there was a this is the view there was such an overinvestment in the biological argument, which was a lot. I mean Butler and these people. The, the biological argument was the main thing where they sharpened it and worked politics around. But the minute Darwin comes along, boom! And then where are they? Yeah, now, it, it wasn't the only... Th- yeah, it wasn't the only thing that, that, that was there. There was a much... I mean, you could say that they should have seen a much more sophisticated approach to apologetics. But that's a lot to ask of them when when the, the, the biological or biodiversity argument had been working for so long. Right. And, it's working, why fix it? Yeah, that's right. So, so, uh, there's, there's, uh, and, and that's, but, but, another thing, uh, one of my colleagues in, in England, uh, would say that a lot of Christians, when Darwin happened and the rationalism came out as a major force, uh, in the late 1800s, was so daunting to Christians that, and this is, I'm not sure whether this is cynical or a legitimate observation, what did they do? They went to the mission field. <laughs> In other words, they got to where, someplace Simpler. 
that, that, that they would have to tangle with this. Now, the mission field wasn't simple right. at all, and they were horrendously, I mean, they were amazingly uh, courageous and so on, so you can't, yeah. it's not so much the people who went, but it's the, where is the battle? Can we shift the battle to cultures that haven't heard at all, which was totally needed and mm-hmm. profoundly neglected before that? Mm-hmm. But there's a sense in where the where is the battle? There's a very little sense of the battle being right on home turf, where they were losing the universities. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'll take a lion over a Darwinist. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And and and, and uh, but but that's I mean that it's saying that as a, as a, any full answer is is, yeah. is very shaky and, and I'm not sure it's. It's true at all, but, but it's for the sort of sense of the church, never mind who goes or who doesn't go to the mission field, but the sense of the church of where is the battle, it, it, could, it could shift. And it was tangling with rationalism and, and people like T.H. Huxley and all these people who were pressing hard, uh, how do we do this? We don't have any way of getting at this. Uh, so, so that, again, it, it's, it, it's to have over-invested in the biodiversity model. It's an interesting book on that, though, and, and um, of course I can't remember either the title or the author, but, but um, I, I think I can send it to you if you give me your email address, but it's, if you're interested in it. But uh, they're saying that, it's, and I really agree with this, that it hit us particularly at a bad time when also German higher criticism of the Bible mm-hmm. was taking off and having a an impact in this country and in England uh, and shaking people's confidence in the Bible to their boots. Uh, And what they think is the worst, the most destructive thing, uh, was that so much of the church accepted it and didn't refute it or even argue against it, but just welcomed it and accommodated it and made made things healthy. Oh, it's not so bad. It it helps. It's, it's, It's okay. Don't don't sweat it. And to the non-Christian world, this was, they could see Strauss's life of Jesus. It's just saying Jesus was not who he says he was. This is a huge put on. Uh, and yet not, the, the, the Christians leaning in a liberal direction, Schleiermacher was big in this direction, people like that, uh, presented a, a, an image of, of, of collapse uh, and, and at the place, it's not fighting battles over biology and evolution. It's right on the Bible itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he thinks that the, the reason we dropped the ball so hard in the mid-19th century was failure to confront uh, that, uh, the, the attacks on the Bible, on the Bible, which is our very uh, soul and core itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I could spin, sort of spin on with throwing things out, but all of which are a piece, but I would never dare say this is what happened and why, because it was enormously big and probably different in different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but, it's, yeah, Marty? Well, that was, it was my, my experience um, at Wellesley College, graduating in 1968. I was a brand-new Christian. I majored in, at the time, there was a biblical history department, and um, but biblical history meant totally higher criticism. Actually, there was a required Bible class for sophomores. The first semester, they destroyed the Old Testament, and the second <laughs> semester, they destroyed the New Testament. And honestly, and I was a brand new Christian, um, wow. with, friend, with friends over at Westminster Seminary, and I was getting books. I was basically doing double the work, because, sure. I, because to me, 
I mean, my becoming a Christian was like a massive worldview change. I went from no meaning, no no idea why I'm on the planet, to this is really true. There's meaning. There's there's God. There's purpose. But and I couldn't swallow. I I knew these professors were wrong, but I was really ignorant. You had to figure out why. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was very interesting. It was a very small Christian group at Wellesley at the time. And I was one of the only ones who saw that the battle, that the, the battle over the Bible was really, that we had to fight it. Um, so I was doing double the work and writing papers against my professors in the department. But a, lot of, but a lot of the other students were living in a split reality. My faith is up here. Jesus is up here. I can love Jesus. I can know and love God. And then I just give the professors what they want. And it's fine. And it really was a big deal because it completely undermined the authority of the Bible. So you didn't like, but, the, you didn't like the fact that you split? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like living with the fact that you split? Like they didn't? Well, they were, they were my dear Christian. They were my only, they were my Christian fellowship. My, you know, but, but they, but a lot of them didn't see that, you know, no, we can't, we can't just swallow this. But it was really interesting what you said in your lecture, because when I, again, when I went to Wellesley, there was a biblical history department, and then not too long after, there's a religion department. And now there is, um, I mean, Wellesley prides itself in its religious diversity, and there's a, there's a minute, they try to have a minister for every kind of religious group that exists on the planet, that, that is represented by the student body. So there's... Various different, you know, Muslim groups and Buddhist groups and Zen groups and I mean I can't even list them all. And they they try to have a, you know, a, a chaplain. I don't know what you call it, but somebody to represent each one. And they just, you know, very very proud of their religious diversity. But again, it's it's studying. Um, the, the religion classes are studying the human. Um, Activity of religion, mm-hmm. not what's actually what may be true <laughs> or not. Well, no, just what you just said about your friends yeah. that were um, their faith was a personal, sort of subjective thing yeah. that, that right. can exist un, unchanged right. by all this other stuff that's totally undermining the Bible. The way that looks to the non Christian world is what you're describing is like, you don't even care whether or not it's true. Mm. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. like you're, you're just playing a game here. Uh, believing something that makes you feel good, and the fact that it's getting totally torpedoed intellectually doesn't bother you. And I mean, yeah. and that that just completely, I mean, un- undermines whatever um, confidence or might have been in the Christian faith being. Real. And I and I will remember conversations with non-Christian friends mm. who who said after that taking those required Bible classes, they were. They were shattered because I, I can remember I can picture one woman what she looked like back then. <laughs> um, but um, a friend, a friend in the dorm, who said I was really looking forward to that class because I, you know, I, was, I grew up in a church. I have no idea what I believe. I don't, I'm, you know, I've never been able to really relate to it. But I really wanted to know: Is Christianity true? Is Jesus real? And, and now I know. Now I know I've got to look somewhere else because now, you know, I've had the, the Bible explained to me, and I realize it's just a human book. Um, you know, uh, the result of basically evolutionary ideas applied to human thought, and the you know, evolution of a, a concept of God that got more and more complex, starting with animism and so King on. King Harari. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it just was, um, it was so sad, you know, here. Mm-hmm. You know, student, there were students who genuinely felt that way. And, they, and then again, they, as you said, they looked at a lot of the Christians 
who didn't seem to be bothered by it, mm-hmm. the undermining of the Bible because Jesus was still their friend mm-hmm. and they could you know relate relate to God and pray. I'm not saying they didn't have real faith. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, but just didn't seem to see that the intellectual battle was was really was huge and was really where a lot of the you know, a lot of the battle was. Well, where is that faith ten years later too? Well, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, because the undermining is so little by little by little by little yeah. chipping away. Yeah. And a class like that, I mean, it might not affect you right away, yeah. but it gives you the perfect outlook five years later. Yeah. And, and it was taught so much. I still remember the first, I remember this, the New Testament professor, the Christian who taught both these classes. And starting, the first lecture she gave, it was, well, there's two ways to approach the Bible. There's, um, there's the fundamentalist way of belief. And then there's the scientific, historical, critical method, and that's what we will do at Wellesley. And and so, basically, I mean, basically, I, I ended up writing all my papers, starting with an introduction on presuppositions, <laughs> and how actually, and and hope, hopefully now with good good side of postmodernism is that there is the recognition that nobody's neutral. Yeah. Um, that idea, that idea was that they, my professors were neutral. Mm-hmm. They were scientific, historical, neutral. Whereas fundamentalist Christians were, were just biased, you know, they just went with their eyes closed and believed and leaped. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I was getting help from professors at Westminster Seminary, Dick was there, and, uh, you know, writing these papers. I was so ill-equipped to write as a brand-new baby Christian, but about um, everyone has presuppositions when they approach the Bible, and, and uh, you know, they, these people are not neutral. They have ideas of what can and can't be. They have ideas of if there's a God, he can't speak. You know, if there's a God at all, he can't speak. He can't communicate in human language. That's an assumption. You don't know that. Yep. You know, so, but again, I was I was very ill-equipped for what I was trying to do. I think your Wellesley story, like, is a great example of kind of like um, this whole thing. Like, the, the university started with God up here. Mm-hmm. Right at the top, and we're all looking at God from all departments, right? Uh-huh. And now God's down here as one sub-line item under the Christians, which is one of many hundreds uh-huh. inside people's heads in that department, right? Uh-huh. So we went from here to being in the heads of these guys in one class all the way down here. And we can explain what's in their heads that makes them believe it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh, I yeah. Have you read um, Mathematics is God Silent? Nope. Because I think that's that's a decent. I don't point. read books with mathematics in the title. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, theology and math—that's the hardest yeah. one. Yeah. But seriously, it's like I, order, just order, I, just order. Period. And I'm happy to let other people do it, but. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. You're meant to, to learn from others. It's good. It's good. You might like math when you're done. Maybe oh, well. math education well, what, is terrible. What was it again? <laughs> Mathematics uh, is God's silent. James Nichols. Interesting. Interesting. Oh. It is actually, it's pretty good. But I feel like <laughs> it's a lot of history that you'll look yeah. up. Yeah. Well, it's got all the scientists from, you know, the scientific revolution. So. Yeah. Newton and Kepler, thinking God's thoughts after it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's got good cool. humanities. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. <laughs> the, the, the history of science is so interesting. Really Esther, this thing says the battery's running low. You might want to <laughs> plug in your PC. Is that... Okay. Yeah. As simple as that, is it? That was awesome. <laughs> Any other things we want to raise? Or? Uh, yeah. Before we went back to 
talking about that topic. We were talking about jobs, and at the very beginning of your lecture, you talked about the corporation taking over the yes. university. Something, something to pick that. But, yeah. but I, I, I mean, from, from my experience, I work as a journalist, and from my experience, I see more of the universities working for the corporations, mm -hmm. trying to fill their needs. Like, yeah. like a university will get a grant from the federal government huh. to give this specific course where they need jobs or whatever. Yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? So it's not... So it, to what extent... Uh, I, hang on one sec. Sorry, I had a specific question. But, I, I mean, it seems like... And, and then more than we'd like to think, the university is trying to make money as well. Sure. So they might not make money on a history major or whatever. Yeah. Like they're not getting federal grants to teach history. Well, federal grants to do something to do with some chemical. Right? I mean, you know, yeah. it's something much more in the sciences. But yeah, I think that's. I, I think the, what these guys were saying is that, that that's going to be the whole story. <clears throat> is that that uh, corporations will have enough money to buy the time of of uh, the university, and and uh, uh, and, and will uh, be willing to finance teaching people for say two years. And we won't have to cope with their their debt and so on mm -hmm. uh, for having been at a four year school or gone on for another two years or a master's degree. And we can teach them what we need them to know to do our work, rather than the whole big general education would be the total waste of time for them. Uh, or they think, it, in fact, it isn't. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of uh, people who are sort of history or philosophy majors who are very, very highly placed at universities now. They didn't get the best jobs coming out of college, uh, but they're, they're doing much better than you would have thought uh, in, at, at about the time they're 35. But wouldn't that be more like the um, medieval apprentice model? Where, like, like, did we really need to go to four years of school for, like, engineering? We didn't. Because I actually went for engineering, and I taught myself everything I needed to know because I became a programmer in, like, the 90s. And I had to learn on the job, and I pretty much could have not gone to college at all, mm -hmm. and not had any debt at all, and still had a really good job afterwards. So what we have always wrestled with, too, we're like, why isn't there something? Because now we're looking at people coming out of school like $160,000 in debt. Right. It's ridiculous. Right. It's half a house. And you didn't learn any practical skills anyway. Yeah. But, and so, so that's what I was like. So what I would have liked to have done is got a skill like that, got a job, but then I want to wear the little hat and go back to school and get the scholar job, you know, and just hang out there and have fun, just <laughs> learning. But that doesn't exist anymore either. Like, where do you go to just learn? Because I want to learn all of those humanities things up there. I want to learn more about history. I want to learn those things just yeah, for the sake of learning. <laughs> sure. Yes, but what I'm saying is culturally, like as a society, oh, we have so library. integrated <laughs> no, job skills library. is it's learning. <laughs> you know, but it's Getting the time is a big one. Yeah. And, and you do, because you read your own books. I totally agree with you. You go to the library. But um, our culture has so entrenched the job skill thing and melded it all together with, like, the scholar. So I was like, I went to college. Okay, for what? You know, I mean, it's like everybody does that now. So it's not so much a scholarly pursuit anymore as it's just, I need to get a job. Yeah. I... I taught seminary courses here and there as an adjunct <coughs> Gordon Connell of Westminster Seminaries. 
And <coughs> so many of the students who were getting an end or whatever, uh, it was costing them enough so they were never going to be able to get a job in the church when they graduated. Mm. They would have to go back to a computer, the computer job they left before they became senator. Wow. And then maybe get out from under the debt enough to, I mean, that's... With lots of administrators, university coordinators, therapists. I just, you're saying those professors supposed to do that in the 90s. I'm like, how is this still sustainable? It's amazing it didn't happen yet. And you wonder, I mean, more and more of our students who come here, um, you know, they, they, they're trying to figure out what to do. A lot of them will go to a community college, and that can be a good thing. You know, it's not the best way. And, and the thing is, there are so many, there are a lot of good professors in every institution you can imagine, mm-hmm. not just in the, quote, top universities, because there are often there's, you know, way way too many professors trying to get a job in the field, but, you know, in, in the university humanities class, and they can't get a job at Harvard or Yale, they can get a job in a community college, and you can have some very good, you know, very good classes. You can also do um, audit classes in places. I mean, actually, that's one of the benefits of Wellesley. I can audit classes for free for the rest of my life. Oh, that's awesome. And I, I haven't done it enough. I've done a few, which have been really, really interesting. And I, I will say the benefit of sitting of, of going to a university or auditing a class from a professor who's actually done their homework, has spent years learning a field, is that is that you know you're learning from someone who knows the terrain, who knows the scholarly terrain, which is hugely beneficial. That I had picked up and read, I did a I audited a class on um, history of um, women in the United States, you know, um, women and gender in the United States. I had read quite a few of the books that were in that class. Just because I, I came across them and saw footnotes to them and saw read a book review, but it was totally haphazard. It was only in that class from a very good professor that I realized the significance of the books I'd read, and that actually this was a really important book that I just picked up by accident, you know. And and um, this one not so much, but just the, sort of what the scholarly terrain is, and I found that really helpful and sort of made brought together a lot of a lot of things that I just learned in a haphazard way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a benefit. I could do that for free. So. Yeah. Well, you've all been long on endurance. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Good having you here. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Did you want to get it? Send it to the end of the book. Oh, yeah, sure. first time. Let me make you write it down for me. Yeah, write, up, <clears throat> write your email address legibly. Right on here on the bill. On yeah, the sure. okay. Legibly. After you turn this off, did you turn this off? It's not 